All right. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Today we'll be uh, concluding this chapter, and then next week starting chapter 13, moving along through this amazing gospel. So Matthew chapter 12 Uh, We will begin reading in verse 33 and uh, read down to verse 50 this morning. So I'm going to make you uncomfortable. Let's stand to honor the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise in judgment, rise in the judgment, with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation." While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and sister, excuse me, my brother and sister and mother. Lord, may you add your spirit and your understanding to the reading of your word. And Lord, would you bless it this morning as we have come here to worship you. We've come here to seek your face. We've come here to hear from you and to learn from you, Lord. So would you speak to us? Would you minister this morning? And would our hearts be open, we pray to everything that you would have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated.
I think at first glance as we read this passage, we may read it and think it's a little bit disjointed, it's a little bit out of place, but remember that this, this is a whole, whole chapter here, at least the chapter headings, of course, were put there for our benefit. But I want to backtrack just a little bit to uh, set the context for us to where we were last week because we had to break at that point uh, just for the sake of, of time. Going back to verse 27, remember Jesus had been talking uh, to them about, um, well, he had healed this man on the Sabbath, as you recall, and then um, they were complaining because he had had done such a thing, and they were uh, upset that Jesus was doing these miracles, doing these, these things on the Sabbath, and because Jesus was violating their idea, their understanding of what it meant to break the Sabbath, they were coming at him pretty hard. And then they accused him, going back to verse 22, as we kind of look back through that section, they accused him of doing what he did by the power of Satan. And then from there, we talked about the, the blasphemy of the Spirit. But in verse 27, Jesus said, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. And that is something that was horrendous, right? They looked at what Jesus was doing. They had been following him. They were watching him. They were scrutinizing his every move. And as Jesus was healing people and raising people from the dead, and he healed this uh, blind, mute man who was demon-possessed and did it right in front of their very eyes, and they had the audacity to say, what you do, you do by Satan, not by the Spirit of God. And so in so doing, they were, of course, committing the ultimate blasphemy by attributing the works of Jesus to the works of Satan. But Jesus, of course, had been empowered by the Spirit. We talked about this last week. When he was baptized, the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And Jesus said that what he did was under the power and the inspiration and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So challenging them to understand that what he was doing was by the inspiration and the authority of God himself and the Holy Spirit giving him that authority from the very throne of God. And then he said in verse 29, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Taking that idea of, you know, if someone were going to commit with criminal intent uh, a plundering of someone's house, you know, robbing them, going in and taking over their house, the first thing you would do strategically would be to take over the strong man. And Jesus says, in this case, as in the case of casting out the demon, as in the case of everywhere he had been, he had to bind Satan. And so Jesus here is making a comparison to the fact that he was by the authority and the power given to him from God his Father and the Holy Spirit, was binding the strong man. And the strong man is Satan. And he said in verse 30 something that's very polarizing and should be troubling to us. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Jesus makes it very very clear to those scribes and Pharisees, but also to us today as the readers down through the ages, that we cannot be neutral 
with Jesus. So in case you have never heard that before, I want to let you know this morning, you can't be neutral on the person of Jesus. When you encounter Jesus, when a person encounters Jesus Christ, you have to deal with him. As someone who uh, once uh, sort of wrote out the argument, and I like it, he is either uh, a crazy man, he's a lunatic for doing the things he did and saying the things he said. He claimed to be God. He certainly did great things. He healed people. He, he worked miracles. He raised people from the dead. But even today, with people having read the Bible or heard about Jesus or heard some of the things that he's done, they still look at him and say, well, he was a good man. He, he, he might have been a prophet. I don't know. But some look at him and they just say, he's just a lunatic. So some would say he's a liar, that he's a deceiver, that he pretended to be God, but he wasn't really. And others might say, well, no, those are two choices, but the third choice might be that he is actually the Lord of the universe, that he truly was God incarnate. And Jesus says, he who was not with me is against me. You can't be neutral with Jesus. And really, Jesus is saying, there's only two choices when it comes to me. You either believe in me and accept me for who I am, or you don't. And the or you don't side of it says that you are against me. In fact, it says you're scattering abroad rather than gathering with me. Now, I think the first and foremost application and understanding of this is becoming a believer, becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Jesus. But you know, in our world, in our society, and I think you know this, there are way too many people who are comfortable with claiming the name of Christ and wearing the t-shirt and going to church on Sunday morning and checking the box, but their life, the other 167 hours of the week, doesn't look anything like the presence of Christ in their lives. And so we have to consider, as we're coming to this morning, the issue of the fruit of our lives. So you have to understand, you cannot be neutral with Jesus. You can't ride the fence. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. You're either for Jesus or you're not. You're either in love with Jesus or you're not. You're either walking with Jesus or you're not. And Jesus makes a polarizing statement here because he wants us to understand there is no neutral or middle ground with Christ. And when he says here in that last little section that we looked at last week about the blasphemy of the Spirit, these religious leaders were attributing the very works of Jesus to the devil and thus they were committing the ultimate blasphemy. But down through the ages, we also understand that the blasphemy of the Spirit, as we looked at this last week, was the rejection of Jesus Christ because the Spirit of God is the third person of the Trinity who's working in the lives of people. And we looked at that scripture last week in the Gospel of John where it says the Spirit is in the world con convicting the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And as we looked at that and we reminded ourselves of the things that Jesus said about the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we understand that he was saying as well that people can harden their hearts against the work of the Spirit. Jesus said the Spirit would testify of me. And so the Holy Spirit, for those who don't know Christ, is working to bring them to Christ, 
The Holy Spirit is providing that witness, and God has provided the witness of creation. He's provided the witness of other believers. He's provided the witness of the preaching of the word, uh, the kerugma, the heralding forth of the word of God. That's very important. That's in, he says in Romans 10, how shall they hear unless someone tells them? And he says, with the heart man believes and with the mouth man confesses, and he believes in Christ. And that's the point that the Holy Spirit wants to bring us to. And then once we come to that point of believing in and receiving Christ, then we move forward in our walk with Christ. And we become a part of that long process that we are on, if you are a believer today, called progressive sanctification, where we are walking with Christ. And until the day that we go to be with the Lord, whether we die or whatever, that the Lord will bring us to be with himself until that day we are on this path of being conformed to his image. So if we know Christ, we have the Holy Spirit within us. So a believer, in my opinion, cannot commit the blasphemy of the Spirit because he or she is believed, and God tells us all throughout his word, Ephesians chapter 1 being one place, that when we come to believe in Christ, that the Lord gives us the Spirit as a deposit in our lives, and now we have the indwelling of the Spirit within our lives. So the blasphemy of the Spirit speaks of those who resist the work of the Spirit in a person's life, drawing them to Christ. One person said this, the brighter the light, the greater the guilt of him who rejects it. The clearer a man's knowledge of the nature of the gospel, the greater his sin if he willfully refuses to repent and believe. The unconverted children of godly parents, the unconverted servants of godly families, and the unconverted members of evangelical congregations are the hardest people on earth to impress. They seem past feeling. The same fire which melts the wax hardens the clay. And then we come to our passage for today. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit so he's still speaking in this very polarizing way you're either for me or against me you're with me or you're not with me now make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad a tree is known by its fruit now many times in the nation of israel in the old testament They had been spoken of uh, metaphorically by the Lord as a vine, as a tree, as a fig tree. God used these illustrations to speak to his people, to his nation, about what good fruit and bad fruit look like. And he told them what their fruit should look like as his people. They should be loving. They should be kind. They should be in love with God. They should care about the things that God cared about. And one of the things God told his people is that they were to be the light to the world, but also that they should be the light to the Gentiles. And it was something that they missed. And the Lord was saying, you should be the light to the Gentiles. But they rejected that. They viewed the Gentiles as, as dogs, as people who were unfit, as people who were unholy. And they would go to all sorts of lengths to avoid any contact or relationship with the Gentile when in fact... They should have been having relationships with Gentiles and cultivating relationships. Why? Because they had God's word, God's message to, uh, to the world that he loves them and that he is merciful and that he is kind. 
And he's telling them that their, their tree was bearing bad fruit. When he says to them in verse 34, brood of vipers, he was borrowing a phrase not only from his cousin John, who liked to use that phrase. When you read about John in the other gospels, you see that he liked to call the people who were coming to him, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, brood of vipers. But both of them were borrowing that term also from the Old Testament as well. Where God spoke of his people sometimes when they were unrepentant uh, in such ways, calling them these kinds of names. Now, to call some, someone or, or, you know, as being from a brood of vipers, you know, was saying basically you're a snake. And they understood that the first snake, the first serpent, was who? Was Satan. So they're saying to Jesus, hey, you do your works by Beelzebub, by the prince of the demons. You do your works by the power of Satan, and Jesus is now turning it around on them and calling them a brood of vipers. He's essentially calling them sons of Satan. How can you, being evil, speak good things? In other words, how can we even believe anything coming out of your mouth? Because you're not sons of God. You may be Jewish, but the fruit of your life indicates that you have no relationship with God. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Wow. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. So what is it that's coming out of the mouth? You see, that's, that's the fruit. And you can say what you want about yourself all day, but your fruit tells the story of who you are. One person said, what is verbalized is a revelation of what has been internalized. What is verbalized is a revelation of what has been internalized. Another way of saying, really, uh, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We have to ask ourselves this question as Jesus is speaking this to this brood of vipers, to these people who were evil, who were supposedly, allegedly the leaders of Israel. These were the people who were supposed to be leading them to God, pointing them to the Messiah. Instead, they were standing against the Messiah who was right in front of them. They were accusing the very Messiah of God, the one whom they claimed to know so well because they were the teachers and the studiers of the scriptures. And yet their eyes were blind to the, the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in front of them. And they didn't understand it. So what were they doing? They were criticizing Jesus. They were pointing the finger at him. They were, they were calling him a son of Satan. And now he's turned it around on them. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that comes out of our mouths? Is it good things? Is it things that bring life? Or are the things that come out of our mouths profane, explicit, or negative, or even cynical and unkind? I hope that's not what comes out of our mouths. One person said a word spoken is physically transient but morally permanent. A word spoken is physically transient but morally permanent, meaning we speak the words and they sort of float off into the air. But as I say that this morning, I guarantee you that every one of us here this morning has heart hurts. We have wounds from people who have spoken words to us. And you can probably right now with no trouble whatsoever recall that. 
because it has been so traumatic in your life. Words do matter. You have to look no further than the book of Proverbs and read through it to understand that words matter. The old saying, sticks and stones, well, not true. Words matter. Words hurt us. Sometimes words can shape our destiny. They can shape the course of our life. A word spoken is physically transient but morally permanent. And Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life, says Solomon, are in the power of the tongue. The abundance of your heart is your treasure within. It's the fountain within you. It's the well within you. Another person said, The lips only utter what the mind conceives. Jesus said in John chapter 7, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus also said, out of his heart, the person who believes in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, speaking of the Spirit. In John, excuse me, Galatians chapter 5, we know this passage of Scripture all too well, but I'll read it. Galatians 5 verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. You see, the Word of God and the Spirit of God working with the Word of God shapes our attitude, doesn't it? At least it should. And so the words we speak are fruit of not only what's in our heart, but dare I say, of the fruit of our relationship with Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says this, verse 29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Now, in the Galatians passage, he said one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Here, in Ephesians 4, 29, uh, he says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. In other words, exercising that self-control that the Spirit of God gives us to set a guard over our mouths so that we don't say things that we can't take back. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Spirit? By the things he said previously in that passage, but certainly by our words. Because that is not a picture of Jesus Christ. It's not a picture of the Spirit of God when we speak in such a way that it's unbecoming of a child of God. And he goes on to say in verse 31 of Ephesians 4, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. In other words, that that seed of bitterness and that anger and all that stuff we let kind of soak and boil within us. He's saying put that away. Another way of saying that might be to say put it at the foot of the cross. Put it under the blood of Christ. And he said, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. I want to say something this morning 
And I want to make sure you hear this. And I believe this just comes out of the principle of our, of our understanding of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great love chapter. It is more important to be loving than to be right. Are we to speak the truth in love? Of course we are. But a harsh word stirs up wrath, according to the Proverbs, right? But kind words, that draws us to Christ. In uh, Romans chapter 3 or 4, I always forget where this is, there's that beautiful verse that says, Do you not know that the kindness of God, the goodness of God, leads you to repentance? If we're telling people about the, the love of God, but we're doing so in a harsh way, how does that make them want to come to Christ? You know, my grandmother, uh, God rest her soul, I have to say that, um, she had this saying, you've probably heard it before, you attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. So that, to me, speaks not just to the words, but to the attitude of our heart. In James chapter 1, James said, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, slow to anger. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Sometimes we think, I've got to just bring some, a little correction here. And we can, if it's led by the Spirit. And if it's done in the right heart, the right attitude. But if it's done with the wrong heart, the wrong attitude, and the words are bad, and the attitude is bad, and the tone is bad, we're going to do way more damage than good in that situation. So be careful. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. You see, the fruit, the abundance of the heart, the words, they matter. Charles Spurgeon, it's hard to have a sermon without quoting from him, said, your words are like a well. The question is, what does the bucket bring up? Psalm 141, David said, Lord, set a guard over my mouth. Keep a watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 139, again, he said, search me, O God, and know my heart and try me. And know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 19, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. These are the things we think in our hearts about other people. Maybe we don't say it, but we think it. And careful, eventually it's going to come out, right? Because it's within, it's in that abundance of the heart. So we even need to guard how we think of other people. And we need to ask the Lord to give us the attitude that he has toward people in our own heart. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Presumption is certainly arrogance, isn't it? Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Lord, I want the things that I think about to be an open book before you. In other words, Lord, I want you to bless what I'm thinking about. Wow, what a different attitude. Finally, brethren, Philippians chapter 4, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, 
whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. If you're struggling with a negative attitude and cynicism and being bitter and, you know, calling people idiots and all sorts of other things, you know, in your heart, if not saying that out loud, you know, maybe it's time to take the mirror of God's word as James calls it and look into it and let it examine you. Let it examine us as we've been looking at this morning and allowing the word to do this with respect to the abundance of the heart. Now, I doubt that there's anyone here today listening who would say that I want the abundance of my heart to be evil. We don't want that, right? We want the abundance of our heart to be good. And the only way for the abundance of my heart to be good is to be filled with Jesus Christ, to be filled with the Word of God, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, in addressing this issue with them, with the scribes and the Pharisees, he says... But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Now, this is a point where we stop as believers and we say amen, because we are under the blood of Christ. If we have come to Christ, our sins are forgiven, and we will not be standing in the day of judgment, which is the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. We will not be there giving an account for those idle words. Instead, You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we will be at the Bema seat of Christ, receiving the rewards of the deeds done in the flesh. And we are grateful that God says that we are under the blood, that our sin is covered. If the heart is a treasury of good, that good will overflow through the lips and do good to others. But if the heart is a treasury of evil, that evil will spill over through the lips and do harm to the person speaking and to those listening. The idle word spoken of here in Matthew twelve thirty six means words that accomplish nothing. Idle talk, words that have no meaning. They have no power to encourage, to edify other people. And you realize, of course, that it's not our words that have the power to convince people to believe in Christ. Paul said that it's the gospel of Christ, Romans chapter 1, that's the power of God unto salvation. You see, we want to, if you will, replace what's in our hearts with the scriptures, with the word of God, so that when we speak to people, if you will, we're speaking the scriptures to people. When we're talking to people about Christ, whether we say chapter and verse or not, but we're quoting scripture to them, we're speaking the truth of God's word. Not my truth, not your truth, but his truth. And I have to say that because the day and the age in which we live, you know, right now we're in Gay Pride Month. And it's all about whatever you invent. You invent your own morality. You invent your own righteousness. You invent your own rules. No, God's word is truth. This is not about my truth and my reality. My truth and my reality is based in a sinful, corrupt world, a fallen world. But God's word is truth. That's why I want my mind to be filled with and washed by the word of God daily. I need my mind cleaned daily. I need it. Listen, I don't know about you. This is just one of those pet peeves I have. You got to brush your teeth, right? If you brush your teeth, why not brush your mind with the word of God? And then he comes to this incredible passage here, verse 38. He says, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees saying, uh, answered saying, teacher, we want a sign from you. 
well, what in the world has Jesus been doing for this last period of time? What has he been doing? Think about all the things he's done. He just, in front of them, had just healed that demon-possessed mute man, blind man. They said, well, I don't know. That wasn't good enough. Can 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 you take it to the next level, Jesus? Can you do something a little bit bigger? I mean, can you, right now, like, can you snap your fingers and do some kind of illusion or magic trick that will convince us that you truly are from God as opposed from Satan? We want to see a sign. Asking for a sign was evidence of unbelief. Now, understanding the scribes and the Pharisees, we've already alluded to this this morning. The scribes and the Pharisees were the teachers of the law. The scribes were the people who copied the law. You see, they did, there was, you know, you got to take your mind way back, right? Right now I can take my device out and I can highlight text and I can paste it into a text and send it to you. Boom. Now this is before the printing press, okay? The way they copied documents was someone had to sit down with the master or the original. Then they had to dip their, their pen or their quill in the ink and they had to copy it. And if they made a mistake, they had to ball it up and throw it away. You couldn't cross it out. So the scribes were the people who copied over and over and over what we know as the Old Testament scriptures, especially the law. That was their job. They were the copyists. They were the transmitters of the truth of God. So if anyone knew the word of God, it was them. But you see what had happened is that They had become legalists. They had become experts in the law. In fact, in John chapter 5, Jesus says, you search the scriptures for you think that uh, in them you find life. And he says, it's they that testify of me. The scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were uh, the people who were making sure everybody uh, conformed to the law. So, in a sense, the Pharisees were sort of the police. They were the conformance people. They were making sure you were wearing your mask. You got your vaccination. They were making sure you conformed. The scribes were the people who said, wait a minute, they're the lawyers. Okay, we know the law. Here's what the law says. They told the Pharisees the Pharisees would execute the law. These people understood the word of God. They knew it inside and out. But you see, they knew not only the word of God, as Pastor Mitch alluded a couple of weeks ago when he spoke, there was also the Mishnah and the Talmud, these extra-biblical things that they had developed when they were in uh, captivity in Babylon for the, the 70 years they were in captivity. They developed these, their own commentaries, their own further explanations of the Word of God, of the Torah. And they began to teach that as the truth of God's Word, that their understanding, that their commentaries, in a sense, were greater than the Word of God. And that's why Jesus chided them so often is because they were governing the people, religiously speaking, from their teachings, not from the word of God. So these scribes and these Pharisees standing there looking at Jesus, they had fixed in their mind that their Messiah would be a political Messiah, that their Messiah would come and liberate them from the, the tyranny of Rome. And Jesus isn't doing that, is he? What he's communicating is the love of God. He's communicating the compassion of God. And as he began his ministry reading that day from the book of Isaiah, how the spirit of the Lord is upon me to come and to heal and to bring encouragement and to bring peace. 
they didn't believe him. And they, Jesus answered and he said, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Think about that. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. So he just called them a brood of vipers. Now he's calling, calling them an evil and adulterous generation. They're not doing too well today. They're on Jesus' bad side. He says, they seek after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is he saying to them? We understand because we're on the other side of the cross. Looking back, he's saying, when I am crucified, when I die, those three days I'm gone. Everybody will have seen me die on that cross, but people will see me resurrected. I will come out of the grave. But Jesus said to them, everyone seeks a sign. I think of uh, Luke chapter 16. I love that passage of scripture there. That's where the story between the rich man and Lazarus. And now, as we follow the story, uh, they're now on the other side of life. They both have passed. And in, during life, the rich man fared sumptuously, and he lived in the gated community, and he had servants and all that. And Lazarus, the poor beggar man who was sick most of his life, laid outside the gate and just hoped to catch a few scraps from the garbage truck as it drove by. And now we're on the other side of life, Luke sixteen twenty seven. Then the rich man is saying, speaking from the fiery side of the gulf that he's on, he says, I beg you, therefore, Father, uh, speaking to Father Abraham, that you would send him, that is Lazarus, back to my father's house. Because they'll know who he is. They know he was outside the gate. They'll know he was that beggar. Send him back. He says, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. I don't want them to come here. I don't want anybody to come here. This is my favorite scripture to use at a funeral. Because I say, without a doubt, anyone who's passed from this life, based on this story that Jesus gave us, would absolutely bear witness and say, do not come into this world without Christ. That's what he was saying. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear, hear them. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Well, you've got Moses and the prophets. You guys are the experts, right? You can't figure this out. You remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3? And G Jesus is speaking to him, you must be born again. And he's like, well, how do you go back into your mother's room? He says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? How can you know the word of God so well but not see the love of God? How do you not see the grace of God? How do you not see the mercy of God? How do you not see that the Messiah had to be this way? Yes, the Messiah will one day rule and reign with an iron fist. And we now know as we look forward in the book of Revelation, we can see that on that great day when Jesus comes and he comes in the battle of Armageddon and he cleans up. And then he, he go, we go into his thousand-year reign and then to the eternal kingdom. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. 
Jesus is greater than Jonah in many ways. He's greater in his person, for Jonah was a mere man. Certainly Jesus was the Son of God. He was God himself. Jesus was greater in his obedience, for Jonah disobeyed God and was chastened. Remember Jonah's story. The Lord said, I want you to go to Nineveh. And, and Jonah said, absolutely not, and went a thousand miles in the other direction. And the Lord then took him into the belly of that great fish. He, you, know, you know the story. If you, if you don't know it, go read the book of Jonah. And, and the Lord still took Jonah because Jonah was his man. And he did not give him the option to say no. Jonah said no, but the Lord said, no, you don't, young man. And he put him in the fish and he took him around the Horn of Africa and whatever, and he took him all the way up and he vomited him up on the beach. No doubt the, the acid of the, the stomach of the whale had probably bleached him and eaten his hair off and he was some freakazoid as he's now walking on the beach. And then he doesn't even want to be there. And he's supposed to go convince the city. Now think about this as your, your senior thesis. Go convince people that God is good. Go convince people that God loves them. So now you're a freakazoid walking down the street, three-day journey walking across the city, hundreds of thousands of people, and here's his message. And this, is, this is like a begrudging, belittled, I, I'm just going to say only what I have to say, and I'm only going to do this much, Lord, because you made me. You know, three days and then God's going to rain down judgment on this city. And that's his message. That's the good news. And what's Jesus doing? Isn't he doing something greater than that? Isn't he doing something more amazing than that? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus arose from the dead under his own power. Jonah ministered to only one city while Jesus gave his life for the whole world. Jesus was greater in his love. Jonah didn't even care about the people of Nineveh. He wanted them to die. He hated them because they were Assyrians. They were the people who had persecuted his people. He wanted to see every one of them rot in hell. Jonah's message saved Nineveh. In fact, when they repented, didn't Jonah say, You see, Lord, I knew you were gracious. I knew you were going to do that. That's why I didn't want to go. Jonah was a messenger of the wrath of God. Jesus' message is that of grace and salvation. That there is hope to avoid the wrath of God. Jesus is greater than Jonah. The queen of the south, verse verse 42, will rise up in the judgment and with this generation condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Uh, Second Chronicles chapter 9 is one place you can go read about the, the queen of Sheba. But it's interesting, the prophet Jonah was a Jew sent to Gentiles, and the queen of Sheba was a Gentile who came to visit a Jew. So it isn't interesting, Jesus pulls these two illustrations. And the queen of Sheba, as you know, if you've read that story, she came because she heard of all the blessings of God coming to and through Solomon in his kingdom as he took over for his father David. And of course, Solomon was building the temple, the house for God. And so this queen from the south had uh, come, and you see Jonah, when he went, he went to take the good news of the Lord. The Lord had given him a word to a people who were going to perish if they didn't repent. And they did repent. 
And the queen of Sheba, in essence, a heathen, a pagan, came to see. She was drawn to the things of God. She traveled uh, several thousand miles to see. Is this true, what God is doing? See, God sent a messenger in Jonah to a people who didn't want to know him, and they heard and repented. And he, sent, he brings the queen of Sheba. He draws her to something that God is doing. And she travels thousands of miles to come and see what is God doing. And the main lesson here behind this history lesson is this. The citizens of Nineveh will witness against the rulers of Israel. For they repented at Jonah's preaching. The queen of Sheba will also witness against them. She traveled a long distance to hear Solomon's wisdom. Yet the Jewish leaders rejected the wisdom of Jesus who was right in front of them. We shouldn't miss the central point here. You are asking for a sign. And Jesus is saying, I'm God's sign. You have failed to recognize me. The Ninevites recognized God's warning in Jonah. I mean, that wasn't exactly obvious, right? You have failed to recognize me. The Ninevites recognized God's warning in Jonah. The Queen of Sheba recognized God's wisdom in Solomon. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Simply put, greater light requires greater judgment. Both Nineveh and the Queen of the South repented even though they had a lesser light shining in their midst. The rejection of the greater light by the religious leaders was indefensible. I mean, Jesus was standing right in front of them. What hope do they have in the day of judgment? Now we come to this interesting one where he says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. And then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Wow, this seems kind of out of place, doesn't it? Jesus just kind of drops this one in here. Well, let's kind of zoom out and get a little bit of perspective. Why did God send his people into exile for 70 years in the Old Testament? Wasn't it because they disobeyed God? Specifically because they, they didn't observe the laws of the land, of tilling the land and letting the land rest and all of that. But it, it, at greater depth, it was because they were in rebellion in their hearts to the Lord. And the Lord was sending them prophets to warn them, if you don't repent, I'm going to bring a heathen nation upon you to judge. And part of that was, as you read through the, the kings and uh, the prophets, you understand that the people of Israel, as they uh, met new people and went into other lands, they, they found out, and as people came from other lands, that there was something there that they wanted. Hell, let's just start mixing things together. And they began to alloy the world and paganism with the worship of God. And God was so deeply offended by that. He said, you know, so you're not honoring the land, but this is just an indication of the evil that's in your heart. And so when God sent them into exile, it was to purge them of the evil. It was to purge them of idolatry. It was to help them understand who God really was. And God had to take them to a very rough, difficult, hard place so that they would understand who God is, just like God does in our lives, right? God will often take us to a hard, dry place so that we can see who he is. And so this is the history of the nation of Israel. Now, 
Remember, there's the 400 silent years from when Malachi was written till when Jesus came on the scene. And now Jesus, the Messiah, is here. John, the forerunner, is here. Scripture is being fulfilled left and right. Boxes are being checked. And all of a sudden, as as Jesus is here, standing in front of them, the Messiah, they're all saying, we don't know who you are. You're not the man we were looking for. In fact, we think you might be Satan, not really God. And Jesus is saying, hey, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. He had just healed people who had been demon-possessed. The man just a, a little bit before this and a little bit earlier in this same passage. And he says, basically, if when you purge and clean up, if something good doesn't come in behind it, namely the Spirit of God, namely Jesus, then when those spirits who have been disembodied, who left that place... They've been out searching to and fro because spirits apparently, evil spirits don't want to be unembodied. So they are looking for a place to hang out and they come back to the place that they were at before and they find the house is in order, it's swept, it's clean, but nothing has filled the void. And then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits or demons who are more wicked than himself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that man is worse than the first, so shall it be with this wicked generation. In other words, I'm before you. You have an opportunity right now to fill the void. I mean, didn't you learn the lesson of the exile? Haven't you learned the lesson that you claim to know because you're the teachers of the law, you're the studiers and purveyors of the law, you're here to help other people find God. God's here. Are you going to fill your heart with the Lord, with the Messiah? And he's saying, but if, that, if a demon comes looking for that empty house and he finds it and it's not filled with the Lord, guess what? The one demon becomes seven and the state of that person becomes worse. In other words, you, Israel, worse things are going to happen to you. We now know from this point looking forward 70 years into the future, the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus Vespasian as he came in and all of those prophecies being fulfilled that not one stone will stand upon another and you know the temple worship is destroyed. The Jews no longer have that temple until the time when the third temple is rebuilt. So all of these things have happened. And Jesus is saying, if we're filled, if we're born again by the Spirit of God, then we cannot be empty. So while Jesus is speaking all these things, verse 46, while he was speaking, uh, talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Interesting. A lot of things going on here in this little section. First of all, if uh, Jesus treated his mother this way, uh, can the, the... the doctrine of Mary as we understand it from the Catholic Church be true because he doesn't even regard her in this state and they have a doctrine that says that she is the co-redemptress with Jesus Christ funny way to treat the co-redemptress isn't it 
While he was still talking to the multitudes, they came, and the other passages, uh, parallel passages, indicate they might have come to say, we need to get you, son, to a doctor. You're a little bit uh, out of sorts here. Maybe you need some rest. I think you're a little bit crazy. So even his family hadn't received him. They hadn't understood who he was at this point. His mother certainly must have been, right? Remember how the angel came to her and told her that she would be carrying the Holy One of God, yet uh, through the years now, she's somehow started to think, well, maybe things aren't quite what they should be here. So his family even coming to him, not believing in him. And Jesus turns and says to the one who said, you know, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Isn't it these? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Here's something we need to understand. When you become born again, when you become a Christian, when you come into the family of God, it doesn't mean your old family's gone away, but you have a new family, and the new family is those who believe in Christ. You see, we have a common bond. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the Spirit of God, it's the Word of God. And that's why fellowship is so important. In Acts chapter 2, when the church is established, you know, that's why we call our, our potluck Sundays, our Acts 2.42 potluck fellowship where they gathered and they uh, spent time worshiping the Lord, breaking bread together, prayer, receiving the Lord's table, uh, giving themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the teaching of the word. You know, this is why we come together to worship the Lord. We need to come together with like-minded people. You know, Satan's method, the world's method, is to get us off alone in a corner and to convince us that we're alone. God doesn't love us, and as long as he can get us out away from the family of God, then he might be successful unless we're incredibly diligent in our own personal discipline of prayer and reading the word and drawing near to God. But here Jesus stretches out his hand toward his disciples. He said, here's my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. In other words, it's a very broad definition, isn't it? Whoever believes in Christ, whoever does the will of God as a result of having believed in Christ, whoever has the Holy Spirit within them, they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, they're the church. Too often we get focused on church lowercase c when we forget that there is a a church universal capital C. And it's everyone who has ever believed in Christ both before the cross as well as after believing in Christ. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. You see, we've learned some incredible things today. One of the things is that the scribes and the Pharisees were blind, and whenever we fall into legalism, whenever we fall into that kind of attitude, we become blind to the things of God. So we have to guard our hearts against legalism. It's too easy to come in with our our list of things that, you know, people don't meet, And we judge them. We've already talked about judging back in Matthew chapter 7, haven't we? Jesus wants us to understand that this is a spiritual thing. Coming to him, being born again of the Spirit, it opens the door to a whole new world, a spiritual world. You see, as as we've talked about and dealt with a lot of these things that are negatively spiritual, meaning, you know, demons and Satan and all of that. And we just talked about how 
demons don't want to be in a, uh, out alone. They want to be uh, inhabited in bodies and that kind of thing. You know, we could have taken the time today to go all the way over to Ephesians chapter 6 and looked at the armor of God and that great verse that says that we are not battling against flesh and blood, but we wage war against the principalities and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We could have gone there and and done a whole study of that and come back to this and said, look, we have to be careful. We aren't to pursue that part of the realm. We're to be prepared. And then when he gives us the armor of God, it's like we have to, to be prepared all the time. And so when we have our daily times of abiding in Christ and reading the word and praying and seeking the Lord and drawing near to him, we are armoring ourselves with the implements that God has given to us. We're putting on the breastplate of righteousness and uh, we're taking up the shield of faith and putting on the belt of truth and girding ourselves with um, the sword of the spirit and the helmet of salvation and the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we do those things and we keep ourselves armored so we can stand against the wiles of the devil. But the point is not to stand against the devil. The point is to take the word of God to the world. It's to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And so who are my, my mother and my brothers and my sisters? You, so often our families, you, many of us know this, right? We've come to know the Lord and yet there are many people in our families who have not come to know the Lord and sometimes they may ridicule us and that, have, I've, that story is repeated everywhere. And that's why we find out that our true family is those who believe in Christ, not so much necessarily the ones who live under our roofs or who are our friends. And so we need to be careful, don't we, that we make sure we are having fellowship. Fellowship is important. Don't dismiss it when we say we have an opportunity for fellowship. That is so important. How many times, and you can probably remember this in your own mind right now, how many times have you you been around a believer in Christ and just left that encounter feeling encouraged, feeling lifted up? Man, I wouldn't even be here, man. I, I can't even tell you how many times I have quit before the Lord. I write that letter of resignation and God says, put it back in the desk drawer. I'm not done with you yet. You can't do that. Do you, Jonah, you want to be like Jonah? No, sir. I'm all set. Letter's going back in the drawer. Thank you very much. You see, the Lord loves you. The Lord loves me. He loves us. There's fruit, there's Pharisees, and there's family. We want the fruit to be good. We want to stay away from the Pharisees. We don't want to be a Pharisee. And we want our family to be the family of God. And more importantly, we want to pray for those in our families who don't know Christ, right? Because we want them to be a part of our spiritual family. But for those who don't, until uh, Jesus comes back for his church or until the Lord takes us home, whatever it is, we want to pray as long as there's breath, as long as there's life for those people whom we know who don't know Christ to come to know Christ. And I would submit to you that's the mission. Making our lives comfortable, having all the modern conveniences, you know, all that stuff, those are just things, those are distractions. Those are things that will lull us to sleep. If you want to get perked up a little bit, go read uh, Romans chapter 13. Awake out of your sleep, awake out of your slumber. It is high time. The day is drawing near. You look around us, look at the signs of the times. If we can't see the signs of the times right now, we are asleep. We are dead. The world is ripe. 
COVID was just a little wake-up call. It's like raking the lawn, getting ready for the, you know, the grass to grow. I mean, the evil is proliferating. We live in an evil and an adulterous generation. Things are going wacko in the world. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if, judging by what's happening in the news and seeing what's happening, if our, if our president is no longer our president and the vice president steps up. I mean, when, is, when has that ever happened? You know, except for assassination, of course. I mean, crazy things are happening. And if that happens, the flood of evil will be opened. It's a crazy time to be living, but it's a great time to be living. There are many people I know who would say right now, this is the best time to be living in. Why? Because the darkness is growing darker, but the light of Jesus is here to penetrate the darkness, and we are the light because of his presence within us. Let's be the family of God. Let's do the will of the Father. And until he calls us home or, or whatever the next event is, let's, let's focus on being the people of God. Let's not shrink back from telling others about Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to be an apostle, whatever it is in your mind. You just have to be a person who's available to the Lord and he will use you if you're willing. Lord, we love you this morning. We bless you. We thank you. As Pastor Mitch comes and leads us to the table, we open our hearts to you. We prepare our hearts right now. And Lord, perhaps we need to just say a little prayer of repentance for things that have been going on within us. And we ask you, Lord, to to come back in and just to fill us afresh and anew and to, to cleanse us. And Lord, if there be any among us today who are listening, who, as we've been listening, maybe become aware that, well, we don't really know you, then we want to take this moment to cry out and to call upon the name of Jesus and to ask you, Lord, uh, to come in, to, to make uh, me to be born again. Lord, I want to receive that forgiveness. And by whatever mechanism of means you do this, Lord, we don't understand how you do it. We just know that you do. If a person comes in the attitude of their heart and they repent and they say, Lord, please, then you will come in. And Lord, give them faith right now to believe, to receive, and to trust. And Lord, we love you, we bless you, we thank you. And as we come to your table, we rest, we remember, we celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen.